Well, good morning, Citizens Church. I'm glad we can all gather together this morning. Um, just bow your heads with me. Let's pray to get started. God, we adore you. Um, what you have done for us is beyond imagination. We don't deserve a single bit of it. God, we just come to you with open arms. We ask that you would fill us up. Um, we ask that you would instruct us and guide us and direct our hearts. Where is it that we are cold to you, God? Where is it that we are not um, able to see you? Where is it that we have so cliched and, and coded you that we no longer see you for who you are? God, break those calloused parts of us apart. Uh, reframe yourself to us so that we may see you anew. God, I pray for this, um, this nation we're in, for this city we're in. God, there's just surging of the virus right now. I pray for health and protection for family members, for those we don't know, for neighbors. God, I pray for um, insight into how we may care for each other. God, help us to do the hard things in order to protect one another. Help us to um, seek to love each other. God, I pray for our nation, for our president, our acting president, um, and for our incoming president. God, I just pray that there would be uh, a, a transformation that would bring peace and understanding, more discourse, God. Um, I pray that, you, that their hearts would be drawn to you, that your divine providence would direct our nation. God, have mercy on us. We don't even know what we want. Uh, care for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, open your Bibles um, with me to John chapter five. We're gonna pick up right where we left off um, last week. In fact, we're gonna overlap a little bit. So uh, pick up a Bible or dial it up on your phone. I've got my, uh, got my leatherback Bible here. It just feels good sometimes to be reading this versus a sheet of paper printed out. So. Here we go, um, chapter 5, verse 16. So remember, we just finished the story of the halfway healed man. And uh, he's been healed. Jesus has said, go and sin no more. And of course, he was healed on the Sabbath. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now. And I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to him, said to them, to the Jews, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed 
from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. For that, the testimony that I receive, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. Gosh, it's a mouthful, right? Listening to John uh, write out this, what we will, what's commonly called a discourse, they're just a lot. I mean, just trying to, to wade through that is intense. Um, yeah, pray for me in my undertaking to share this with you. This is a hard text, you guys. Um, I, th I think it'll help to frame it up in a few simple ways. One is, I, I think you can very easily and clearly take the last story that we had, which was really fundamentally about a, a, a perversion of our attitude, a breakdown, a corruption of our own attitudes towards God, and take it from the invalid to the Jews. And we can identify not with the invalid in the story, of course, but with the Jews who question and even seek to kill God. Um, and just like that invalid in the past story, that lame man who laid by the pool waiting in hopes that the, the angel would stir the waters and bring him healing. 
Just as he had it all wrong, and in fact, it was Jesus who would come to bring him healing. In that same way, the Pharisees and the Jews and the elite and the Jewish power structure and authority, those who sort of controlled what it meant to be followers of God in that time, they also, Jesus is revealing, were believing a wives' tale. That they had gotten off track and that myth and folklore and rules and things that had been come up that were so far from the basis and from the reality, he'll say, even of what Moses said. That they, that they so clung to all of these extra creations, these man-made structures of what it meant to follow God, these rules and regulations, that they were actually following a wife's tongue and they couldn't even see Jesus for the healer that he was when he came into the room with them. Okay, so frame this whole discourse because it, th there's, there's really a few pieces to this. First, Jesus is uh, hearing, we're hearing the accusation they're making. Jesus is refuting it and giving an explanation around it. And then Jesus is rebuking them as ones who have gotten it all wrong as ones who have believed something such to the extent, so to the extent do they believe in this wives' tale of, who, of, of what God is and what he will do, that they can't even see Jesus anymore. That in fact their thinking about God is so far off base from God, they aren't actually worshiping God. And that's the claim Jesus is making. So you can see why they're upset. You can see while they're just seething. Because Jesus is making this deep assertion that it is not I who am wrong, but it is you who are wrong. And of course, they're offended. So let's, let's begin here with that in mind and just listen to a few things. So first, uh, I just want to share, just to frame us in how to read this kind of discourse. This is language... Um, really quite different from a lot of the other language we have of Jesus in other places. Um, there, there's a sort of um, elaborateness to it, poeticness to it. What does it mean? William Barclay says, here we come to the first and the long discourses of the fourth gospel. When we read passages like this, we, what, we must remember that John is not seeking so much to give us the words that Jesus spoke as the things which, which Jesus meant. He was writing somewhere around 100 AD for 70 years. For 70 years, he had thought about Jesus and the wonderful things that Jesus had said. Wow. 70 years. This is the fruit of 70 years of pondering the mysteries of Jesus. Many of these things he had not fully understood when he heard them, but more than a half a century of thinking under the guidance of the Holy Spirit had shown him deeper and deeper meaning in the words of Jesus. Uh, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project puts it this way um, in a recent podcast I was listening to. He said, look, he said, there's a few things about the Gospel of John. One is this whole gospel, you've probably noticed at this point, is the same basic biography of Jesus. But it's, it's like there's a very different director for the movie. Right? We know the story. We know the basic plot points. But here we've got like an auteur director who's giving us a very different take. That's what Barclay's getting at. He, he's got more perspective on it. He gets, he extracts every bit. It's like coffee and you're pushing down on the French press and he gets every bit of flavor out of those beans from these experiences. So he can say, have one story like the invalid or the Samaritan woman and he can say so much from it. And Mackey also notes that like a teacher who tells you something over and over and notices when your eyes light up and when it works, 
John is doing that. He, he has certain themes that he returns to over and over like a symphony. And he knows when he can just get that spark because he's seen what helps people get the spirit, what helps them hear the truth. And so he, he just packs that in so densely. And dense indeed. Oh my word, this passage is dense. So how do we get jump into it? Let's start right at the beginning here where Jesus is just jumping in and he's basically responding to their accusation, right? It says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, verse 18. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So we start in this heated, impassioned meeting between the hatred of the Jews and Jesus, confident, fearless Jesus, as God himself who cannot be wrong, right? It, it's almost like the, uh, the immovable object means the unstoppable force, right? You've got these just deaths, dead set Pharisees who are literally sent to the point of killing him. That's how strongly they feel about it. And then you have God, right? Who's gonna win? And the fight, the fight is about can you have equality with God? Well the, well, the Pharisees would be right and the Jews would be right to um, question this on some fundamental level. There's a, there's, a, there's a truth, there's a kernel that's correct about what they're saying. Um, there is no man, there is no fallen man, a seed of Adam, who, who, who could take equality. That's what Adam tried to do. He tried to take what was forbidden, the forbidden fruit in the garden, and the serpent said, if you take of it, you will be like God. You will have equality with God. He tried to take that. And the Pharisees were saying, nobody can take that which God doesn't give them. And nobody is God. Nobody can give these things that you purport to give. But see, we can't really trust the Pharisees' perspective. And we'll see this theme over and over. Because the Pharisees were wrong about a fundamental truth. There's something rotten at the core. Yes, they're right about this kind of general doctrine that man is fallen and can't be equal with God. But how much can we really trust their discernment on what is a broken man and what is a God when they themselves won't allow love to happen because of their rules and regulations? What happens in the early part of this? He healed a man on Sabbath, on Sabbath and they are incensed. Jesus did a very loving thing, but he did it in a time and a place in which those people had said, you're wrong, you can't do that. And they had prevented love from coming from God because of their gross, awful hearts. So we can't trust them. We can't trust these people. They can't really sense when God-like action is happening and how to have a system that truly allows it to happen. If their rules prevent a healing on Sabbath, their rules cannot be trusted. If their structures of their religion prevent love from happening from one to another, we cannot trust the structures of their religion course of clear application if our churches have rules and regulations such that we are not following the love nature the healing nature of God himself and we are actually preventing and instructing people against healing giving love because it somehow invades on what the power structures that are there the leadership there says is right we should be suspicious of that. And Jesus, in fact, is suspicious. He sees, he smells it, 
and he's going to chase the stench down and he's going to just find out where it's all coming from. And so that's how he starts. But of course, Jesus doesn't do it in a, in a hateful, murderous rage like the Pharisees are coming to him. No, in fact, he does it in a way to appeal to them. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own, own accord, but only what the father is doing. So the first thing Jesus does is he tries to de-escalate the conversation. He says, you're saying that I purport equality because I'm taking of a fruit that I'm not allowed to have to get a power I'm not allowed to get, to be like a God who I'm not like. But let's, let's change the conversation. What if, what if in fact... God is giving me everything that I have. What have I done that would be apart from him? What reason do you have to say that I am not of God? Everything I've done, I can stand by it and attest to you that everything I have done is of God as he would do. Do you see that? Do you see how he's doing that? Of course, the Pharisees don't agree with him because they say, well, you healed on the Sabbath. That's not of God. But you see, they're wrong. Their doctrine, their understanding of God was wrong. And Jesus says, no, no, no. No, I can only do what the Father is doing. So he says, actually, that he, what he's saying right there is actually the healing that I did on Sabbath, I was right to heal him on the Sabbath, and your things are wrong. And I was doing what God believes. So you need to refigure out your understanding of God so he allows you to love people fully and completely. And then he continues, he says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Greater works than these he will show him. So you marvel. So Jesus was teeing up some things here, right? He's teeing up the cross really early. John's, John's teeing up. John's saying, John's writing this and he's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create actually a discourse, a monologue from Jesus that brings us right to the cross. That's what, is, or that's what John is doing. So he, he's actually putting these breadcrumbs out in a very calculated way. In fact, this, the structure of this, I'll put an image up here. The structure is like a target. The structure of these verses are that verse 19 and 30 match up, right? They're the same theme. Verse, verse 20 and I believe uh, 29 match up. There, there's this concentric circles. Like if I color-coded this target and you had... Blue, orange, yellow, red, and red's the bullseye, right? When you come out on the other side, you're going to have orange, yellow, blue. And all of, the, all of these things, it's like a funnel. All of the things in this are going up like in a V, like a hill, to the center, to verse 24 and 25, where the cross is exemplified. And then they all come back down. It's as if John is taking us into that bullseye. He's carrying us up a mountain. And he's saying, when you're at a certain elevation, all the themes are going to feel the same. When you get to the next elevation, they're going to feel the same. And I'm going to take you up through all those themes. We're going to look out from the mountaintop. And then I'm going to take you down all through those themes. That's what he's doing in 19 through 30. And it's amazing. It's so beautiful. So he's teeing up the cross and he says, For as the Father raised the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life to whom he will. So now he's teeing up this idea that Jesus is eternal and life-giving. That Jesus isn't just abiding in the, Son, in, the, in the Father. He doesn't just know everything the Father knows, but he actually has the power of life-giving that the Father has. And he says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So we know that, the, that, that God, the creator, the creator of shalom and peace and perfection, knows what perfection is and can judge what isn't perfection. And it says here, Jesus says, but I have been given it. 
So every discernment I make about every person will reflect exactly what God understands. And that's because it's been given to me. It says that all may honor the Son. That's been done so that all may honor me, the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent me. So now see what Jesus is doing. He's saying, whoever doesn't honor me actually doesn't honor God. He's naming. He's taking this logical argument. He's working up this mountain and he's saying, okay, we're high enough up now that I can show you where we came from on your question and your accusation. It actually shows that you don't honor God. And then he gets to 24 to the bullseye. Truly, truly, I say to you. We're going to pause just for a second. So that amen, that amen, that signifies that we're at the middle here. Okay. So what's Jesus said? He said, I don't ask you. Jesus is also saying this. He's actually giving a lot of comfort. He's saying, look, I know as Pharisees, you are really concerned that you do what God wants. So I'm going to, I'm going to allay your concerns really quickly. I'm going to say anything I tell you isn't something that would be against God. Like, we're not fighting the same fight. You're not fighting against apostasy in what I say. And because I'm breaking your rules, I'm a heathen. No, in fact, we're all pursuing God together. And if so, you should believe in me. He's actually trying to compel them and win them towards him. He says, you're on like this death lock against me. And I'm going to try and love you out of that by helping you see the true light of what I'm doing and what I'm about. You guys have deluded yourself into thinking you're the gatekeepers that get to hold the way to God. But I need to first get to the root of that, to the stench of that, and say, no, I'm the gatekeeper. Jesus himself is the gatekeeper. He's the one that really knows. Okay, so he's gotten us up to this mountaintop. John's gotten us up through these implications of if I obey the Father and then if I know everything the Father knows and then if I have the life-giving power and life in me and it can't be taken away from me like the Father. And then if I am a judge the Father, now we can get to the most important thing of the whole text, the bullseye, the mountaintop. Amen, amen. I, tell, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Well, that sounds familiar, right? That's gospel right there. Belief, born againness. Whoever hears my word, he says, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 25, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So he's following up right after this, those who do not honor me do not honor the Father, which is him saying, you Jews, you got to figure this out. And then he's giving them an out. He's saying, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words, though, and believes in me has eternal life. That you can pass from death to life right now simply by declaring that Jesus is your ultimate authority. And, he's, and, then it's, and then it begins to become a warning. Now we get to go back down the hill. He says, truly I say to you, an hour is coming. There's Jesus talking about his hour again. We've heard this multiple times. What's the hour always signify? It signifies the culmination, the fulfillment of why he came, which is his sacrifice on the cross. 
The hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. Wow. Those who hear will live. And then earlier he says, he has passed from death to life. The one who hears Jesus has passed from death to life. So what Jesus is saying there is he's saying, look, the second you have believed in me and your attitude changes not to seeing yourself as your own authority or the world apart from Jesus as your own authority or the devil as your own authority. Once you've changed that and you see that I am your own authority, then you have total security and assurance. As It's as if you were spiritually in the garden before the fall. That's the kind of perfection you have. That's the kind of love you have. That's the kind of knowing. In fact, we can see that he's sort of showing that everything I got from the Father, I give all of the fruits of that to you. That just as I am given, if you believe in me, I pass that giving forward. At my behest, at my request, you will get the life that I have and you will get it eternally. Now we can't say that Jesus is also passing that deity forward to us exactly because he is always and forever God. But he is passing the fruits, the benefits that Eden, that created place to us with assurance and total security. Bruner, commentator Frederick Bruner says that this, these 24 and 25 of this bullseye are the places of deepest hope in judgment because they declare that we who believe have been spared eternal death. We've been spared eternal death. What we deserve, what we inherited, what we have lived out of. We have been spared that. And then we are in the deepest, he says, then we get to the deepest hope in listening. That Christ now and forevermore brings true life to all who listen. So we've been spared eternal death. And we've been given eternal life. Those two things have happened. We've been spared the death and we've been given the life all because we are in, because we are hearing and believing and we are in the Father, which kind of puts us in the same place that Jesus is in. We have that assurance and also we are in a place where we do nothing out of our own accord, but only what the Father is doing. And that we begin to know what the Father does through the Son so that we can, we can have a faith and a belief in that. So here we are up at this beautiful vista from the mountaintop. Here John has taken us through this chiastic structure, this, through to this bullseye, up to this peak. And we are in the most profound, important part of it. But Jesus is clear that it will not be heard unless you hear it, Right? Only those who hear will have these things. That there is a, a precondition. And that it is faith in Jesus as your authority. 
So now that we're up at that pinnacle, now that we can see clearly, right? It's almost as if we're up on a mountaintop and we can say, I'm higher than everything else. And John is saying, and the highest thing above you is God and Jesus, and he's going to go to the cross for you. Don't leave this bullseye. Don't leave this place. Root yourself out of this peak. Root yourself into this place where you have been spared judgment and given eternal life because you hear and believe you are in accord with the Son who is in accord with the Father. John points us to that most pivotal spot because he wants that to inform everything else. When you are climbing up to the mountain, you are desiring the vision from the top of the mountain. When you are climbing back down from the mountain, you are remembering the vision from the mountain. The ascent of the mountain is all about that realization, that epiphany. And it will then inform everything that comes after it. And John is saying, this is the most important piece. And it's profoundly simple. But it requires that you let go of every other authority. And of course, Jesus is sitting in front of Pharisees who are getting more and more defensive, more and more locked into their own authority as their hand is. He's pleading for them to let go of it. But they are just feeling more and more calloused to the point where they want to kill him to get rid of his message. Think about the irony of that. What Jesus is saying, to use our analogy from last week, like our, 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 our car and traffic analogy, if you remember last week I talked about how Jesus is basically saying, look, you don't understand that if you walk into that road, when he says go and sin no more, when you walk into that road, cars are whizzing by at 100 miles an hour and they're just going to knock you flat on your back and kill you. You don't see that, so I need to tell you that. Well, what's being spelled out here from John after lots of pondering and thinking about it is he says, Let's take that one step further. He says, Jesus sees that there's all of these and he's showing you what's more amazing than that is he has stepped in front of every car that will hit you and kill you. And he has died for you to spare your life from it. He has died for you. So now if you don't look and say, that guy lying on the ground that just died for me, has spared me, I will do whatever he asks of me. I owe my life to him. If you don't see that, you clearly don't hear and believe. You don't believe the car's coming will actually kill you. You don't believe that he's the one that takes the judgment away from you. If, if, if somebody died for you, and they wrote in like their last will and testament, um, who they had died for, don't they get to pick? If I die for somebody, don't I get to pick who I died for? Right? If I jump in front of something to save my wife and kids, I didn't jump in front. I didn't. I, I jumped in front of them. I chose them. I chose who to die for. And that's what this passage is saying. It's saying, if we continue on through to verse 26, it says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So Jesus didn't have to do it. Right? He did it out of obedience. He has total life in himself. He went through death in obedience. And then it says, And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So Jesus gets to decide on his death in the cross 
what it is that he's dying for. He is dying to take away the sins for all who would match into his accord with the Father. So he gets to decide, but because he's in total accord with the Father, he doesn't truly... he, he, he All of his decisions, let's put it this way, all of the decisions he decides are going to be a complete matching. Here's a good way to explain it, and this maybe this will help seal what you understand. God is a flame on a candle. Jesus is like the light coming out. And this isn't a perfect metaphor, but like imagine God is a flame on a candle. And Jesus then is directly related to that flame on the candle. He's the light. He, he's, he is of it, but he is different than it. The life is a different property than the flame. And if we want to take a true, true, true Trinitarian model for this, I know it's not a perfect metaphor, but the, the spirit would be like the heat. You have three essences that come out of one God. So Jesus is saying it is possible for the light to be of the flame. I don't have to be separate competing influences because I'm not competing. I'm perfectly mirroring in every way. So the Pharisees are trying to shut down anything that competes with God as they see it. But in doing so, they have actually competed with God. And Jesus says, no, I perfectly match it. And what Jesus is trying to say, in the, what, what he's saying perfectly, much better than what I'm trying to say, in what Jesus is perfectly saying, to help us understand in our current time, in 2020, as opposed to 100 AD, is that it's, it's, it's like Jesus is trying to say, look, in order for you to fit in in this world, you need to have a heart of somebody who, like me, to jump in front of traffic to to keep somebody else from dying, you will do the same. That you have those same qualities that the light has to the flame. That you act out of the accord of the sun. Those are people who believe. Now Jesus has to, has to take away those sins and those judgments and those, those wrongs from us, for us, because it's impossible for us to do it on our own. It's impossible for us to do what he's asking to do. That's why works, that's why being perfect and giving donut isn't a pathway to heaven. The pathway to heaven that Jesus is outlining is an attitude shift that's based on an authority shift. Once we see Jesus as the authority, once we have the attitude that says he saved me, then he can say and vouch for us in saying, yes, those are the ones I died for, the ones who have that attitude. The ones who believe. It's, and I put another way, it's almost as if he's saying, I died for all of these. All of them. Jesus died for all sins for the whole world. And a whole bunch of people are walking through that street and they're saying, no, you didn't. No, you didn't die for me. Jesus is saying, no, I did. I died for you. And they're saying, no, you didn't. This is a perfectly fine street. None of these cars are going to hurt me. Do you see it? Do you see why it's so important that we could see the actual reality for what it is, the threats for what they are, and the Savior for who he is, and then begin to abide out of him? Here's another visual, um, and this visual is, I'll put it up on the screen, it's uh, two circles in, in, in like a Venn diagram, you would say. The top one's heaven, the bottom one's earth, okay? And the overlap here in the middle is where heaven and earth come together. We have been operating out of this point in the center of earth because of our inheritance, because of our original sin, where we act out of that. 
and care about that. Jesus has been operating as a point out of the middle of this circle up here, right? And he has come and entered down into this space. And he is saying, once you operate not out of the bottom circle of of earth, but once you operate out of heaven, then you will still be in earth, but you're tethered to heaven. It's like you've reversed the polarity of your magnet. And you've said, instead of being pulled and sucked back to the earth all the time, I'm going to say, I would rather be pulled and sucked back to heaven all the time. It's a helpful visual for me to see what he's trying to say here. And he's saying, you don't get to, to switch the polarity. You get, to, you, get to, you get to choose who you believe in. Some people would believe. Depends how you think of predestination and election. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. Um, the reality is that you need to be tethered to the right place. So, I hope that makes some sense. Probably could be clearer somehow, but I, don't, I hope that makes some sense. That now as we're walking down off the mountaintop, Jesus is, gonna, is going to bring to these Pharisees a greater understanding. He's going to say this. He's going to say, do not marvel at this. First, first, let's go back to 27. He has given him authority to execute judgment. Because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all are in tombs will hear his voice. So the the culture at the time would have been hearing this a lot differently than we're hearing this. We have like no distinction between this term son of man and son of God. Okay. But to the Jews at that time, they have deeply different significances. The son of man was in, I think, Daniel 7, 13. Um, It talks about the son of man. And he's he's like the bringer of love and mercy and goodness and he's a delegate of man. And so the, the Jews had thought, oh, this is like the ultimate man, like prophet, um, godly man who comes and leads us out. He's the Messiah. But they didn't have like a godly quality attached to him. He was a man because there's only one true God, right? How would they have ever had a prophecy where that would be God in flush? To them, they were like, no, there's one God. We're monotheists. We believe in there's the one true God, Yahweh, right? And so this son of man is like a human prophesied savior, Messiah. So when Jesus is saying, don't marvel at this, he's saying, you're freaking out about this thing, but it's actually true. But you've so hung on to this idea that the Messiah is going to be a man, not God. But I'm going to throw you for a loop. And I've just shown you the whole argument for why the son of man has to be God. Because that's the only way he gets to make those decisions. That's the only way he can truly save. But he says the Son of Man and the Son of God are one thing. And the Pharisees are saying, no, 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 they're not. No, they're not. And Jesus is saying, yes, they are because it's like the flame and the light because I act out of the same accord. He says, so it's true that the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Redeemer, is actually the one who has power over life and death. And is actually the one who brings you. Yes, the Messiah will bring an age of peace and mercy and goodness. He will be the redeemer of the Jews. But he will be it because he is also God. And when you profess your allegiance to the Son of Man, you are also professing it to God. They are one and the same. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of the life and those who have done evil. To the resurrection of the judgment.
So we get down to the bottom of this mountain. And I think what's very clear, as I spelled out earlier a little bit, is that Jesus is countering this accusation. He's doing this judo move. And he's now completed it. And he said, the accusation you had to me, that I'm not equal with God, is wrong. I am equal to God. And because I'm equal to God, I'm going to now break down all your preconceptions, all your structures, all of your belief system that you built on top of God's belief system. I'm going to smash it to pieces. You should have no problem with that, he's saying, if you truly believe in the one true God, Yahweh, and let go of all of the things you built on top of it. You should have no problem. But you do have a problem with it, he says. But you do have a problem. I can tell because you want to kill me. So let's go to verse, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the one of him who sent me. So here, Jesus is just reiterating what he said in verse 19. It's that target idea. He's repeating the theme. We're at the bottom trail of the mountain. He's saying, look, we're on the same trail. Just as I started saying I'm in the own accord, now I'm going to finish saying, look, I can't do anything on my own. All of this matches what God does. Okay. Now he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And he goes on to give this whole witness section, which I don't know if you're like me, but the first time I read that, my eyes kind of glazed over. Uh, why is he going on about witnesses? Why does this matter? Why is this a big deal? Well, the, the Jews have this idea that there always had to be somebody that witnesses. I mean, this is still true. If you have a crime, it's my word against your word unless there's a witness. And that, and that goes way back, I think, to Deuteronomy, to like the, the, the law given to Moses, that there should be a witness for something to be true. So Jesus is saying, even by your rules, there is a witness. And even by your ideas of what good theology is, He's a trustworthy witness because he's John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was actually a Levite, which was a, in the line of the priesthood, who would be one who can go into the temple because he is of an accord with God. So he won't be smitten down, you know. He's, he, he, can, he can be in that space because he has so practiced and set his whole life and his attitude to be one accord. He says, there's a guy that did that and said, I'm the Christ. So actually, what is it? Is it the high priest? Is it the, the priesthood, the Levites? Or is it you guys? Which is the right priest? Because Jesus is saying there is a human witness. It's John the Baptist. He's saying, but I don't even need that testimony, but I'm just going to use it because that's your, own, that's your own rubric. That's your own sense of how the rules work and how you've appointed. So I'm just going to show you, even by your own standards, even by your own constructs, it, this, this is true. But he says, but the bigger thing is that I'm in accordance with the Father. Right? Don't get out in the weeds. Don't say just because our priest said it's okay, it's okay. Look and see, is it in accord with God? Over and over and over in his warning, what Jesus is basically saying is don't delude yourself. You're not healed until you believe in me. Okay? So, Meanwhile, the Pharisees are in a place of saying we have built and we get to build our own sense of truth and what is right or wrong. So um, we get to say um, whether you're right or wrong, Jesus, because we control that. And Jesus essentially calls this a hellish attitude. 
He says, you're saying that God is wrong. When you say I couldn't heal on the Sabbath, you're saying God is wrong. That's a hellish attitude. That's an attitude of taking what is given by God and demeaning and defaming it. Because it doesn't fit by your rules and what you've said is correct. That you have taken what is good and you have you have said, it doesn't, it's not my authority. In fact, I get to spell out my own authority. There's a line in um, Paradise Lost, which is like a famous epic poem from hundreds of years ago. John Milton wrote it. Um, but it just, it, it's from the voice of the devil. And he basically says in the, in the first line of the poem, he said, the mind, is, the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven a hell or a hell of heaven. So that's what's happened here. The, the, the Pharisees have actually made a hell of heaven. They've made it so that true justice can't happen, and they've made a heaven of hell. They've said the holy place, the holy way, is one where healing actually can't happen because it happens on the Sabbath. So they've taken the goodness, and they've, they've made a hell out of it. And then they've taken their hell and they've said, this is heaven. You should be like the Pharisees. Everything we do is the best way to do it. But the fundamental core of that, the fundamental root of that, is that the Pharisees want the power. The Jews want the power. They want control. Another line, the line at the end of that phrase in the poem is, it's better, the devil says, it's better to reign in heaven, better, sorry, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. It's better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Jesus is confronting a people who see him and have buckled up and who have begun to hate him because they, he's telling them, because you, people who believe that, you think it's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. What do you have to lose if you're in accord with God? But you've chosen what you want and you want to get it. And you've decided that that's the thing you need. And so you've just decided it's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Hell is wanting God to serve you and your desires. And heaven is wanting God and what he desires. Let me say that again. We need to hear this this week. Hell is wanting God to serve you and your desires. Heaven is wanting God and his desires. Let's put that Venn diagram back up, that heaven and earth. If you're rooted up to this top circle, then you are wanting what God desires. And anything in any way the earth changes to become centered up with that top circle moves in to eclipse together. If that happens, then there's going to be nothing you disagree with. You're going to love all of it. But if you have rooted yourself to the earth, then you are going to be calling heaven to come down into your earth and combine with your earth to perfectly overlap it. And it won't. It won't do it. And you're going to be left there. You're going to want God to serve you in your desires. But he wants you to want him and what he desires because it's what's best for you. And there's no other way. The other way is death. 
So, there's just a few more things here. One is this. Um, in order to really hear this text, we could say, man, I, I totally like, I wouldn't be anything like this. I would totally see Jesus. I don't know what these people were thinking. But I think we have to put ourselves in this position and we have to say, okay, uh, if I had been on boots on the ground at this time and dude had shown up proclaiming that he's God, would I have believed in him? Or would I have trusted in the labels more than the actions? Would I have looked more at what the authorities that I put my trust in say about truth? Or would I look at truth and goodness itself? Would I believe in the God who is love? Or would I want to have love from the people that hold the power to give it to me around me? See, the time that, that, that this happened, there was multiple movements. Ju Judaism was a fractured, gross, um, like infighting mess. There was the Pharisees. There was the Sadducees, which were like two camps. They even worked together in the Sanhedrin. There were two camps of different religious theological thought that sort of uh, the Sadducees were kind of in control of the priesthood. The Pharisees were more, in, in more over a theocracy, like a power structure of governance over everybody that was rooted in like following God, but actually all the power was in the Pharisees. So we had those two people. We also had the Ascends. The Ascends were, uh, the Ascends were a group of like ascetic monastic people who just lived out in the wilderness. Right? That's what probably people thought John the Baptist was. A guy, they just left it all. They said, I don't want anything to do with it. And then there was the zealots who wanted to take control over the Roman government, who wanted to get what was theirs because, they, because there was one true God and everybody needs to know it. So there was all these infighting movements that had different approaches towards what they believed was the, the Jewish identity and the fulfillment of that and the good future that they were going to have. So in the Pharisees' mind, here's an upstart that wants to start a new movement. It doesn't fit any of the other paradigms. There's this guy who's maybe like an ascent out proclaiming it. There's uh, people like Nicodemus, Pharisees kicking the tires on it. But it's wholly different. It's for all people. He goes out to the Samaritans. This is a brand new movement. It doesn't share any of the marks of any of the other, other movements. So they say, this is a new movement. We need to shut it down. Because it doesn't fit into any of the other existing labels that exist in the world. Would we do that? Do we look around and do we say, instead of going to the Bible and praying to Jesus in the Spirit, and instead of going to the source to look about what needs to be in the world, I look to what the world's already created in broken images and faint reflections, and I anchor myself to those over Jesus himself. Because what you're doing is you're anchoring yourself to those wives' tales, those angel stories that don't really work. And if you anchor yourselves to that, when reformation comes and renewal comes, it will split those apart and new iterations of them will come because we're always fallen people. I look around, I don't think there's one true Christian denomination. I, I, you could disagree with me. I just don't think, I think these are like the movements in late stage Judaism. We're in late stage American Christianity. There's all different structures, people trying to take control of government. People trying to say, I'm just going to go, no offense to homeschoolers, but I'm going to go homeschool out in the woods, like the Ascends. Or people that are saying, no, we're the right camp. 
Baptists are the right camp, or Presbyterians are the right camp. We've got it all figured out. These are the doctrines. And I think what this text is challenging in a very big way is saying, don't anchor yourself to the label, anchor yourself to Jesus. Now, I am not saying any of those places are necessarily misguided, although there are people, um, I'm sorry, at their root, but there are definitely people in every movement of Christianity who are like the Pharisees, who have anchored themselves more to the glory of other people and climbing the career ladders and wanting to be seen, and that being, as if they are seen as successful in the eyes of those around them in the church, then God must see them successful. You see that? But Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You've got to get away from the labels. You've got to get away from the codes that we've created to simplify everything. And you have to keep tackling. Work out from the mountaintop. Remember that? And then look out in discernment and see, is this person of Jesus? Okay? So, so what he does now, he, he, he now directly applies that. I'm applying that to us directly. See how he applies this to the Pharisees. And then we're just going to chew on this for a minute before we wrap up. Okay. End of verse 37 is where he really gets into this. So he has his whole proof. He sets out his whole mathematical proof here. Incredible language. So much I can't go into. And then he says, his voice says, the father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have heard, his, his voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. See? See what he's doing? He's saying, actually, people who think you're in charge of all religion and have all the gatekeepers to God, he says, you've never heard his voice because you can't see me. The fact that you think healing on the Sabbath can't happen is a sign that you literally don't know God. And you are the people that are a theocracy. You are a governance saying, we tell the world what God wants and we're going to rule over you. How bankrupt is that? He said, his voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. You don't know Jack, is what he's saying. Because I can tell because of the fruit of what you do, that your attitude is warped at the very core. I've nailed the stench, I see what it is. That mountaintop, the one thing you're supposed to have, you want nothing to do with it. That's where the stench comes from. You don't wanna be redeemed by somebody else. You would think it's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. He says, don't go back to your text and try and figure this out. What I have said is true. Don't go back and try and figure out how to refute me. Don't go back and try and figure out why, why this fundamental core truth is wrong in some way. No, let it permeate out and change everything about you. He says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Don't be delusional, Jesus is saying. Don't be delusional. Don't believe your healing will come from a wives' tale and angels in a water that are never going to come. But also don't believe that, that the authorities and those around you, don't take their word for it, that they, what you have to do is what they say it is right and true. We have the beauty of the Reformation that says, no, the Bible's in your hands. But even then, don't look for the scripture for little bits and pieces 
to reaffirm what you want. Let it break you down. Let it annihilate and rebuild all that is wrong in you into something that is good. Tim Keller puts it this way. Let me just find the quote here. You guys have been going off notes for a minute. Um, he, he basically says this. He says, only if your God can say things that accept, upset you, will you know you have a real God and not just a creation of your imagination. So an authoritative Bible, which is the point of contradiction, he says, is not the enemy of a personal love relationship with God, which is the point of contact. It is the precondition. This is what helps us know him. How can we know Jesus apart from the scriptures? But the scriptures are about knowing Jesus. They're not about coming up with reasons to hate people or coming up with reasons to stop healing or prevent love. He says, I do not receive glory from people. I'm not like you Pharisees, verse 41, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. How does he know it? Again, because he sees what they're preventing and what they want to stop. He sees that they would rather God himself be killed at their hands than for them to have their power taken away from them. He says, I have come in my Father's name, but you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? There, that's so cutting. We live so much for the glory of other people. We live so much for the, the praise and affirmation of the church around us to see whether we're being a good Christian. Or some of us aren't anchored fully enough into that and have enough trust into it. So we have different people that we're looking for affirmation of outside of the church. And we're placing all of our, am I loved? Am I good enough? In their affirmation. Jesus says, no, place it all in me. Because in that you have the love of the Father through me and I have intervened because my way is a way of mercy. He says, you are given of it. Stop trying to take it from other places and come get it from me. And that's what we're trying to do as a church. We are trying to come get it from Jesus. Not from each other. We love this community. We love affirming each other. But we do it because of the affirmation we get from God. And in the affirmation, we try and show people that they are affirmed by Jesus, not just by us. But of course, it's really hard to act like Jesus, isn't it? He knows we can't do it well. He knows we can't do it perfectly. But he knows we can have an attitude that is in accord with him. That way, when we are instructed, like the Pharisees are here, instead of rebuking and wanting even more to kill him, we will be like the Samaritan woman who comes around, who in humble and meekness says, you get me. That is what I want. Help me start from zero. Dismantle everything that's wrong from me. Because I don't want to come to the end and find out everything I thought I was doing that was right was actually wrong because I was missing Jesus in it. That's what Jesus is saying is here. He's saying, verse 45, he says, there is one who accuses you, Moses. Moses wrote the Torah. Moses wrote the, the books that would have been like the anchor claim for these people. He says, the, those books accuse you. The author of them accuse you. The one who got the word from God accuses you. You are so off base. 
If you do not believe what he has to say, how will you believe in, in me? He says, he wrote of me. All scripture points to Jesus. So if scripture, just applications for you guys, just a few. If scripture, as you're reading it, is reinforcing anything other than love for God and love for others, something is desperately wrong. If scripture is condoning your disdain or your hatred, even for the lost, I want to put that again. If you are more buttressed, more firm in your foundation of your hate for those who are other than Christian, something is desperately wrong. You are not seeing Jesus in the scriptures. Jesus will say, love God with everything you've got. Be the light to the flame. And then let that light light up the darkness. Love all others. All others. You want to be changed? Love God with everything you've got. You want to be changed? Love all others. Not just some. He says it will change you. That is a sure way to fight our coldness, our sureness, our complacency in anything other than Jesus. Jesus gives us the deep assurance. The mountaintop is the thing we yearn for. We don't get our assurance from any other affirmations. Just so hard. What Jesus is saying is if you see anything other than love happening from a Christian, that person does not know God. And you need to bring them back into love out of your own love. Help them see and come back to him. Remind them to repent, which is to say, I am wrong. I need you to reform me. And then believe, please reform me. 1 Corinthians 13, we all know this. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. I was really just struck with how much I have withheld my own love from people that I view as lost. How much I withhold my own love, which essentially is justifying my own hate against those who are lost and have it wrong. Anyone who has it wrong in my mind, how I withhold my love from them. And the, the deepest Feeling The deepest urge I got from this text that bubbled out of this was that Citizens Church, our first impulse should be to love somebody over being right. Now you might buck up against me, but hear me. I am not saying we should pursue being wrong about the gospel, about Jesus, about the Bible. But our first impulse should be to love somebody else over being right. If you don't love people because you're worried about somebody saying you're wrong and you did the wrong thing, you're already in a place where, and I'm convicted of this just as much as, as you, where I feel like there I do not know God. Wow, Jesus is pretty intense about that. He says, if you really stake your claim on that, if you double down on that, you never knew me. Whoa. 
It just undid me. My heart is like mush from that, going, oh my gosh, I just need to be loving. I just need to be so much more loving. I'm so in pursuit of what's right and let that maybe guide how I should act so that I can check every box the right way and do everything right so that nobody else can say, John, you're wrong because you're a pastor and you're wrong. And just same way, church. Don't operate out of that fear of condemnation. We're not gonna have it all right. You're gonna, you're gonna walk up to somebody who needs your help and you're not gonna know exactly what the right answer is. Lead out of love for them. In this way, and I just, guys, I'm just convicted of this. We are in Jesus when we do this. And the church, therefore, we have no justification of hate. There is no scriptural justification that allows us to hate the lost. We cannot hate the LGBTQ community. We, we cannot justify the way that that community has been dehumanized and marginalized by the church, called less than and unworthy. We cannot turn people away when they are facing hatred, a, a killing, threats, danger. That there is no justification of hate to race in our church. There is, we cannot turn our eye to hate crime. There is no justification for it. That there is no justification of hate to cities in our church. I think of Jonah and Nidifah. He hated the city. We cannot hate our own city. How will we be a witness of Jesus to our city if we hate it? That there is no justification of hate to other backwards people. Jesus and the Samaritan woman is a great example. Whoever in your mind right now, you think of who you think is wrong. Who this week you have said, gosh, they're so wrong and they're creating so much problems. There is no justification of hate for them. Only out of love do we serve them. And only out of our love for Jesus will we guide them back to him. Jesus does not waver in his views, in what he believes is the truth, and what is at that mountain peak. He doesn't waver on any of that. And therefore, he doesn't condone the Pharisees to do bad things to other people. He says, you should heal on the Sabbath. How dare you not do that? And he actually steadfastly rebukes them in order that they would change so that that injustice would be healed. So a way that we can love people who are perpetrating injustice, I want you to hear this. This is something I've really been thinking about. Communities that you say, well, I get to hate them because they perpetrate injustice. Because they are racist. Because they do hate gay people, transgendered people, whatever. The way that you act towards them is not to hate them. But it is to lovingly bring them back to Jesus. That may look like, study this text, what is Jesus doing? He's keeping the door wide open, but he's keeping it really clear where it is. And he is intervening to rebuke directly, actionably, not passively. He is confronting the very people who perpetrated injustice against a lame, disabled man. And he is saying, you are wrong. But not because I am right, but because God is right. Let me tell you how. How does he do it? He does it in a patient way, a kind way. He is not proud. It does not dishonor people. Their own actions dishonor them. He's not dishonoring them. He's not throwing 
huge, unnecessary insults. He's just stating the facts. And if they feel shame, they feel shame. He's not angry. He doesn't keep records of wrongs. If they repent, he brings them back with open arms. If you remember nothing else, remember that we are a church, we are a people that are masters at deluding ourselves. But that Jesus is love. He has loved and poured himself out for you so that you can go and love and pour out to each other. So check your hate, check your bitterness, check your coldness this week. Be people that love all others and it will change you. Let's pray. God, I care so deeply for this church. I care so deeply for the church in America. I feel, God, that we have lost the plot in so many ways. I feel that this text is prophetic for us in this time. That we are a people who is so comfortable in our own affirmation of each other that we are deluded and we are not loving people well. Help us find where we can love others. Let our first impulse be love over cold correctness. Reform our hearts and as we get into that mess and as we go in love, be with us so that we can proclaim the truth to win all back to you. Help us to be agents of justice in an unjust world. Let us not comfortably sit back. Tell us something this week that will change us. Help reinvent our habits and our lifestyles so that we will be radical witnesses of your love into the world, so that we will stick out as different. Help us do that with each other in our cohorts and our spaces. Help us grapple with those hard ways that we are cold. Help us tear those down. Help us to forgive. In Jesus' name, amen.